Okay, Advent 2.0, we're back to, this is part three, week three in our series in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. By the way, would anybody like a Bible? Um, We're going to be in Matthew 24. We make those available at the door. You can grab one, you can come in. And uh, if you want one now, our guys would be glad to hand one to you. Matthew 24 and 25 will not be up on the PowerPoint Sir Ernest Shackleton was a British Antarctic explorer uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Anybody heard of Ernest Shackleton? A few of you have. Uh, He's one of my heroes, at least for this event. It wasn't like he had a perfect life, but um, this was a fantastic story. On December 5th, 1914, Shackleton, with 27 men, set out on an Antarctic expedition in a ship named the Endurance, They're going to the South Pole. The plan is to do uh, a trek across the Antarctica, but they had to to get there first. On January 19th, six weeks after they had departed, the Endurance, their ship, became stuck in pack ice uh, in the sea, in an ice flow. On January 19th, six weeks later, that's when they became uh, stuck frozen in in the ice. On February 24th, the ship was converted to a winter station to live in the ship as they were stuck on the packed ice. On October 24th, eight months later, still stuck in the ice, the ship began to take on water and had to be abandoned. On November 21st, 1914, Almost one year after the ship and crew departed for their journey, the Endurance sank. The crew uh, had to live in in an encampment on top of the ice flow. No rescue uh, planned for them. Then on April 9th, 1915, excuse me, 19... 16, 15 months into the journey, the ice flow that they were camped on broke in two. Shackleton ordered his 27-member crew into three lifeboats that they had rescued, that they had uh, retrieved from the Endurance before it sank. Uh, So a total of 28 in three lifeboats. Spent five days on the rough sea, They traveled 346 miles from where the Endurance sank, and they landed on Elephant Island, an uninhabited island where nobody goes. Um, So Shackleton put his best man in charge of 22 and left them behind on Elephant Island, and six of them headed out in a lifeboat converted to a sailing vessel. On April 24th, Shackleton and five uh, of his men traveled 17 days over 800 miles to South Georgia. Is this getting tiring? This was like the endurance. This was like extreme sports before they were invented. When they arrived at South Georgia, Shackleton split the six men into two groups. He and two other men trekked 
over very rough, frigid territory, 32 miles in 36 hours without stopping. As soon as he arrived, nobody reckoned. He had been to this place two years earlier, and nobody recognized him. That's how bad a shape they were in when they got there. He ordered immediately that his three men be rescued on the other side of the island. Next, after Shackleton probably had a meal or two and clean clothes, he set out to rescue his 22 other men that he'd left behind. Over the next four months, he set out three times to rescue his 22 men. But because of the sea ice, he was stopped all three times. Finally, on August 30th, 1916, Shackleton got through and he found all 22 still alive. Um, Shackleton had returned to his men to keep his promise. When Shackleton arrived for his men, to his own surprise, they were ready to come on board. They had been waiting for him to come. When he asked later uh, how they could be ready to board so quickly, they told him, Every morning, their leader rolled up his sleeping bag and said, Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. That's what our message is about today. It's get your things ready. Boys and girls, men and women, because he may come today. The boss, our master, our Lord Jesus Christ may come today. There is nothing in the Bible that prevents him from coming today. Um, Jesus instructed his disciples right before he left that he would return. He would come back. Um, on the night before he was crucified, John chapter 14. See, I was looking up here. I got to look over here. John chapter 14. This is, a, this is in the uh, room where they had the Last Supper. The next day, he will be crucified. So he had his 12 disciples together. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, God the Father. Trust also in me, the Son of God. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's speaking of heaven. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Next slide. And if I go, because he is going to go, and they're going to be left alone tomorrow because he's going to be dead. Now, he's going to be raised again, and he's going to ascend into heaven, and he's going to go to that place that he prepared. And then he says, this is what I want you to see. I will come back and to take you to be with me. I will come back. Jesus promised his followers he would come back, and they have been holding on to that. And we who follow Christ have been holding on to that for 2,000 years. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Where? In my Father's house. He's talking about heaven. And if we go to the book of Revelation, in the end of the book, we're talking about an eternal kingdom, ultimately. Um, so Jesus promised that he would come back and he would rescue them. Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 is an extended discourse by Jesus about this time he would come back, about the end of the age, 
about what we call the second coming of Christ. And, you know, I sort of wish that we could have all day and I could teach you everything I think I know about this. And so I, I, sometimes I have to, I raise questions. You wonder, well, what about this and what about this? And I wish I could answer them. Uh, I still have a limited amount of time. And there are things that are important here that I can't answer today yet. Uh, the, the first, when we, there, Jesus is going to tell two stories in this section, beginning with Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. So in your text, please find uh, Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. And basically, Jesus' instructions to us are this. Be wise and faithful until he returns. Be wise and faithful until he returns. He starts this uh, teaching with a question, Matthew 24 and verse 45. He says this, Who then is faithful and wise servant? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? So he starts with a question and it looks for who is faithful? Who is wise? And uh, he's searching uh, for the answer. And, and Jesus is, uses a brief story picture here to illustrate his point, to make his point. This is really a mini parable. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a brief story. And he paints a picture of a common first century situation, a servant uh, and a, or a steward. There is a master of a household. This is a little bit foreign to us, very common in the first century. You have to remember that his stories were like everyday occurrences for them. So this is easy for them to see, a little harder for us. Um, and so there's a master, and he, he owns quite a bit of property, and he oversees quite a few people, employs a lot of people, and he puts one person in charge over this group, a steward, a, a chief steward, a manager of the house. Kind of like what Joseph did back in Genesis 37. He was over everything in Potiphar's house. And so they get this picture. It's pretty clear to them. And the master is searching for a wise and faithful servant. And who's wise? Who's faithful? Now, this is going to be a question that he wants to know about us. Who is faithful to him? Who is a wise servant? Somebody who is faithful is somebody who follows the instructions, who follows the teachings of Jesus. Somebody who is wise is able to take the knowledge they have about a situation and, and put Scripture into practice at the right time, at the right place. It's being able to apply truth, somebody who is wise. Wisdom is the art of skillful living. It's not just having knowledge, it's knowing what to do with it. And as we come to verse 46, he's really going to give us two choices. Choice number one, be wise and a faithful servant. That's pretty simple. You can guess that that's what Jesus would want, to be wise and faithful. Matthew chapter 24, verse 46, Jesus says, It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Doing what? Being wise and faithful and being in charge of his servants and, and handling uh, the food and, and the administration of the household when things need to be replenished and replaced and bills need to be paid, he's looking for a faithful servant who will do these things. That's the first choice for a servant. And the outcome is in verse 47. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
What's the outcome? First of all, it will be good. Verse 46, Jesus said, it will be good for that man if he's doing so when he comes. It would be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he comes. It will be good. I don't know what that means. I know I'd rather it be good than to be bad. I'd rather Jesus say what you did was good rather than have him say, not so good. And then uh, next, there will be a promotion. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. That's going to be a promotion. I don't know exactly what that's going to be. Now, some of you don't even like that. I don't want any more responsibility. You know, I don't want to be put in charge of everything. I don't like to be put in charge of anything. The first century culture was a little bit different than ours. Um, Generally speaking, they saw this as a really big deal that somebody would allow them to care for their property, their money and stuff. Um, Here's the deal. It's a promotion. And there's going to be a promotion in eternity for a follower of Christ when we bring it down to an an application. Um, So Jesus is looking for faithful and wise people. When he returns, it will be good. There will be promotion. Choice number two. It's not stated. It's just kind of assumed to be unfaithful and foolish. Who wants to be unfaithful and foolish when Jesus returns? This is the exact opposite of what Jesus is looking for. But let's look at Matthew 24, verses 48 and 49. Jesus says, But suppose that a servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And... Then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Well, you know, Jesus' audience, they got that. It was so far, it was so radical. It was so, I mean, that's, who's going to do that? You know, that's really foolish and really stupid. And uh, obviously, he's not going to, things are not going to fare well with his master. But he's giving us a little hint there. What if the master stays away for a long time? He's giving us a hint. He's going to be away for a while because here's what's happening here jesus would leave the earth and he would say he's coming back but he didn't say how much time would happen in between but he wants his servants to be faithful and wise until he comes back problem is the servant might begin to think well he's not coming back or he's not coming back very soon and so they get real sloppy about how they live And since no accountability, I mean, Jesus doesn't really do anything when I disobey, you know. And uh, so he sets out this scenario. It's pretty radical. Um, The servant is self-centered, violent, living out of control, hangs with wrong people, makes poor choices, and he's a great disappointment to his master. And we see the outcome in verses 50 and 51. These are the words of Jesus. He said in verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. This is what Jesus has been teaching all along. We've seen this several occasions. Nobody knows the hour, the day when Jesus is coming back. The father has set the time. Nobody knows except God. Verse 51, he will cut him into pieces. Whoa, that's harsh. And assign him to a place with the hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, Jesus is beginning to make a little shift here in his story. It's becoming a little more real. 
And there's a spiritual nature here that's beginning to take on. And he's speaking spiritual truth here. He will, he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And Jesus has somebody in mind nearby who were the hypocrites in the first century. And they were the religious leaders of the day. The people who should have known better. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law, the clergy of the day. They should have been leading the nation, speaking the truth, and helping people understand about God and teaching people to follow God. But they got off the course, and they got so concerned about how they looked on the outside, but not so much on how they were doing on the inside spiritually. Jesus is referring to those who are hypocrites. And then he says, they're going to be cut into pieces. They're going to assign them a place with hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not good, folks. That's a place where people will be tormented. The master is going to come when he's least expected, and he's going to deal with foolish servants, treat them harshly. Um, And that's the description that Jesus used in the first century, a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later, Jesus will refer to this as hell. But he's just giving us clues here. This is what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, verses 6 through 9. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He's speaking to the church. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. That's an encouragement. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That's Advent 2.0, by the way, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That's Revelation 19. When Jesus will be revealed in his glory, he'll be coming in the clouds and the sky is going to light up at night like everything is night and he is the light that's going to light the entire world. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels because they're coming to judge. We looked at a passage last week where they split, right? We're going to look at that in two weeks also, a different passage. Verse next uh, uh, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The good news. There's going to be punishment for those who do not know God, who do not have a relationship with God. And those who do not obey the gospel. What is the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's pretty simple. It's good news because we can uh, not have to pay our own sin penalty. There is a sin penalty. This is kind of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, and it's eternal death, eternal separation from God. Um, I mentioned this last week. You know, physical death is where the body and the, the physical and the immaterial separate the soul, body and soul. In, in the year 2000, uh, my father passed away, he went to be with the Lord as a follower of Christ. And the day I went to the funeral, or the night before I went into the funeral home, there was a body in the casket. And most of you know how sad that is. But guess what? My dad wasn't there. His body was there. There had been a separation. My father's soul was separated from his body. And the encouraging thing is, I have a great confidence that his soul went to be with Jesus immediately. And that his soul departed to heaven immediately to be with God. But there's a separation. 
wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. So when a person who doesn't know Jesus dies, there's a separation of the body and the soul, but the soul departs not to be with Jesus, but to face eternal punishment. They will be punished, verse 9, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from next, we we have one more. From the glory of his might. That's how it ends. Okay. Um, you know, our denomination didn't dream this up. This is just what God says in the Bible. This may not be the way I would plan it if I were trying to figure out how to do this. This is really a big deal, though. And, you know, the church, we just need to be reminded how big a deal this is. It's important because we, we may have people in this room who haven't come into a relationship with Jesus yet. And it's important because every one of you are surrounded by people in your daily lives who don't know Jesus yet. And our job is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And we just need to be reminded how big the stakes are. It is a matter of life and death. A couple of lessons. Uh, First of all, lesson number one, there will be an eternal judgment for those who ignore Jesus' warnings. That's just what the scripture says. There will be an eternal judgment. We just need to be reminded. You know, we're not trying to be politically correct. We're not trying to be popular. We're just trying to say the truth. Lesson number two, live like today is the day you will meet Jesus. Live like today is the day. Be faithful. Follow the instructions. Follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus one day at a time, one step at a time. Get up every day. Lord, help me to walk with you today. Give me the strength to follow you. And when you fall down and when you sin, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me, restore me. Get back up. Don't veer off the course for six months. It's kind of a waste. Live today is a day you might meet Jesus. Be prepared. And the master... Jesus is looking for people who are going to be faithful. He's looking for people who are wise. He's looking for people who follow his example and to serve one another. So much about the body of Christ is designed so that we serve each other. Now, there is a time on Sunday morning where we come like this and you get to sit and you get to watch me. But... All these other times, before and after and during the week, opportunities to serve each other, help each other with needs that we have in the body of Christ. We are to be salt of the earth and light of the world. We are to be an ambassador for Christ and represent him to our world in our homes. What if you represent Jesus in your home to your husband or to your wife or to your children or to your parents where you're living in the power of of Jesus' strength and shining brightly for him. That, it really helps when it comes to resolving conflict if somebody is an ambassador for Jesus. Um, he's looking for people who will be faithful and wise to pray as he has instructed. Okay, secondly, this is the second uh, story. It's a parable, 20, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Be wise and ready until our Lord returns. 
be wise and ready until our Lord returns. Sounds a whole lot like our first point, doesn't it? It's just a slightly different. But here's the point. That's what Jesus wanted us to get. You know, sometimes redundancy is good. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Jesus is making a point here to be wise and ready. Uh, verses 1 through 12 is the parable. And um, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We have that little, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This is a Sunday school definition. It's really a good one. A parable is an everyday concrete picture of something that communicates an abstract spiritual reality. An earthly story, something that people got, and he was, got, Jesus was communicating some spiritual principle. And if you look at uh, chapter 25, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like... The kingdom of heaven is an abstract spiritual concept. That's why he's using earthly stories. So let's look at the story. Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took the... This is really a foreign story to our culture. So let's watch it. The kingdom of heaven will be like, not the same as, but there's a comparison, like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. The foolish one, ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars with their lamps. A little preparedness. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. I think that's another clue. Jesus is not coming back quickly for the first century audience. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. You could get that. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going to go out. Now some of you with mercy gifts would have wanted to give up your oil right then. That's not what this is about. This is about being prepared. You are responsible to be prepared. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, be responsible, and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And... The door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. So that's the parable. That's the story. The key players, the bridegroom, five uh, foolish wedding attendants, and five wise wedding attendants. It's real simple. Now, we don't do weddings quite like this. These are female wedding attendants who are not yet married and apparently not yet been with men, okay? That's why he calls them virgins. But we don't do weddings like this. It's just a cultural thing. But it's a story that the ancient Mideastern culture got. 
This is, weddings were really important. And they became the most important thing. It wasn't like, you know, today you can go to a wedding every weekend and you get distracted by 16 other things. You've got a life and a job and all these things. Not in their day. Everything shut down for the wedding. So Jesus wants to make a point here. Um, so weddings in the ancient Mideastern culture in the first century were a great traditional event. Usually it was the parents who made the transaction for their kids and decided who would marry who and even signed a legal agreement, an engagement that was legally binding for the couple. So there are some good things about being born in the 21st century. I know my kids wouldn't have appreciated it if I had to pick their mates. Um, so after this um, and the wedding ceremony, the day of the wedding ceremony actually came to pass, uh, the ceremony would be held at the bride's home. And after the ceremony and after a, a celebration there, the bridegroom would take his bride back to his, usually back to his father's house. And by the way, John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to go back to my father's house. That's what they did in weddings in the first century. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and in the first century, and who's he talking to? He's talking to those who are following him, and they will become the church, the bride of Christ. They don't get all of that. They don't understand all of that. That comes in Ephesians chapter 5, more of this imagery being uh, developed. So Jesus had promised in, in John 14, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And that's what exactly what the uh, first century groom did. Unless he was really a rich man and could build his own house, and there were practically none of them, what he did was he built onto his father's house. And if he had, had some means, he could build a really nice room so that they could go and live in the father's compound. Now, if you were poor, you just crowded in with the rest of the people in the one-room house. You brought, brought your wife in, and that's the way the sleeping environment was going to be. But this was just part of their culture. So on the, and th this particular story where the ten virgins, their job is to wait for the... They're coming from the bride's house, and they're coming to the bridegroom's house, where either a room has been added or you're just going to crowd in. And these 10 bridal attendants are supposed to watch and be ready. And then they're to go ahead with their lamps. It's going to be a night thing. It's going to be wedding night. And they're going to bring a parade into the home. They have to be ready. They have to be watched. Anybody who was a wedding attendant, this was an important deal. And they knew they had to plan ahead. And each of them had oil for a lamp. And then they, it was customary to carry an extra little, I don't know if they had a flask but some kind of container that carried the extra oil for when your lamp went out. Five were ready. Five were foolish. And so when the bridegroom came, they were out of luck. The five who were ready went into the wedding uh, celebration. The door was shut, and the five who were not ready came, and it was too late. It was too late. Revelation 19 pictures another wedding ceremony in the yet future 
the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus, the bridegroom, will celebrate with his church. That's where history is moving. Um, Let me offer a quick interpretation here. The bridegroom in our story is Jesus. He keeps talking about master and and. And in this story, it's the bridegroom is Jesus. Ten virgins likely to refer to the nation Israel. Some think it refers to the church. Some think that the five uh, wise bridesmaid or bridal attendants are the believing church, ready for Jesus' return. And that the five uh, foolish bridal attendants are the professing church who really aren't ready and don't have a genuine relationship with Christ. Maybe. It makes a whole lot more sense to me that it's the nation Israel. John the Baptist had gone ahead to prepare the way so that people were ready for Jesus when he came at the first advent, the first time. And their hearts were prepared. And when Jesus showed up, he had a following right off. They were prepared. He prepared the way. A whole lot of people heard Jesus and they said, nah, he's just a carpenter. And... The, the, the bride is not mentioned in our story. And I think the bride is going to be the church. It's just my opinion. Um, the whole point is still the same. The point is, be ready. Be faithful and wise. Lesson number one. There is a time coming when the door of opportunity will be shut. We just need to confront that. Be clear, there is a time coming. It's not about scaring anybody. It's just the truth, okay? We have an opportunity right now. Sometimes we call it the church age. Whether the church is present, we have a responsibility, we have a mission, we are to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. We are to share the good news with people. It's a life or death issue. But there will be an end at some point where the door is shut and Jesus is going to say, after that, I don't know you. Only the people I know who are in relationship with me right now are invited. Um, So there is a time coming when the door of opportunity will be shut. Matthew 25, verses 11 and 12 remind us, later others also came, sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The door will be shut. Uh, Lesson number two, live like today is the day that you will meet Jesus. Sounds a whole lot like the one we just did on the last point, but it's still the truth. Live like today is the day you will meet Jesus. Jesus wants everybody to be ready for him when he comes. Matthew 25, verse 13. This is the last verse in our section. Here's, what he, here's his point. Therefore, keep watch because you do, do not know the day or the hour. Sound uh, familiar? Sound similar to what he's already said. He wants us to be ready. And here is our motivation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to those of us who know Jesus as personal Savior, who have a relationship 
with him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is our motivation. All of us will appear before Jesus one day. This is the judgment seat of Christ. This is for believers only. There is no judgment to hell or eternal punishment here. This is entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But as a follower of Christ, I'm going to stand before Jesus. I don't know what it's going to be like. I've tried to imagine that I'm going to, I'm going to see a, like a video clip of my entire life, everything that I've done, good and bad, those things that it totally embarrass me. Wish to, oh, I wish I'd never done that. And it's going to be like an instant video clip. It's going to take less than .0001 seconds. I don't know. But I'm going to know what Jesus thinks. And this, is, this isn't a threat. He isn't going to hit you over the head. This is heaven. But it does make a difference. He's looking for faithful and wise. It makes a difference how you live now. He cares. He's looking for people to follow his instructions, people who will apply what they know to walk with him. And uh, so, there, you know, this is going to lead to reward. There, there's a lot in Scripture about rewards in heaven. Some people are going to receive rewards. Some people are going to be just lucky they got there. Um, so um, to those of us who already know Jesus, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus if he were to come today? Uh, how about your relationships? Do you have your relationships um, in order? Are you currently holding a grudge against anyone? Are you, do you, are you holding a grudge? Is there something between you and a, a friend, you and a coworker, you and a spouse, you and a child? Have you, is, are you in a right relationship with God right now? Is there a pet sin in your life? Uh, that you have not allowed God to deal with? Does your speech honor Jesus? Do I gossip? Do I take God's name in vain, being used in an empty way? It's meaningless. Sometimes people throw around God's name and it's so, uh, it offends him. And we just think it's okay to throw around God's name. And, um, it dishonors him. Does my speech honor? Do I gossip? Uh, am I critical? Am I a complainer? Am I an angry person? Do I need help with my anger? Am I abusing my body with alcohol or overeating or overwork? Am I a proud person or am I a humble person? Do I care about people who don't know Jesus yet? Is my heart becoming spiritually callous? What do you need to do? to realign your life with the lordship of Jesus. And to those who uh, are here today and perhaps never have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, never have really placed their faith in Jesus, how do you begin a relationship with Jesus? And I'm going to just repeat four principles that I shared last week. How do I begin a relationship with Jesus? First of all, admit to God that you are a sinner. This is for every person, all of us, 
need to admit to God that we're a sinner. That Romans 3.23 passage simply says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person in the universe except God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Um, sin is an attitude or an action. It means to miss the mark. It, it means to fail God's standard. Every one of us is a sinner. I'm a sinner. And if we wanted to measure our sins, I'm a bigger sinner than some of you, okay? Maybe a lot of you. Um, and one of the interesting things about people is what we do is we begin to compare our lives with other people. Well, I'm not as bad a sinner as he is or she is. And so we compare with each other, and, you know, it's relative. Who's, who's the, the worst sinner? Who's the better sinner? I'm better than you. And we somehow begin to feel pride and superiority because of something like that, which is absolutely silly. We're all sinners. Next, understand the consequences of your sin. Romans 6.23, understand the consequences. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The consequences for sin. Um, wages are what we earn, what we deserve for what we've done. And for sin, it's death. And it's not just physical death. We've already talked about it. It's eternal death. It's eternal separation from God. Jesus called it hell. And then thirdly, understand that Jesus died for you and took your consequences. This is the good news. This is an amazing thing. And sometimes this is an obstacle right here to people. A lot of people understand they're sinners. They don't get this. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated uh, his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of love. He loved us. He loves you. Spend the rest of your life getting that. He loves you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. He loves us. And he demonstrated that love by sending his son. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the truth right there. Christ died for us. He was our substitute. The wages of sin is death. That's what I deserved. He took my death. He took what I deserved on himself. Death. He died for me. He took my place. My penalty was paid for 2,000 years ago. Your penalty was paid for 2,000 years ago. There's nothing you could ever do to pay for it yourself. He paid for it. It is his gift to you. And fourthly, trust Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin. Trust Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin. Acts 16.31 it's real simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Philippian jailer asked Paul and Barnabas, what must I do to be saved? This was their answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you, and you will be saved. Saved from the penalty of sin. You won't have to take hell as your own death penalty. Jesus took it for you. And then uh, John three sixteen, the best known verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world. And we have to make it personal. And I, and I think I told you last week, I knew this verse, but it wasn't personal. I thought God sent his son Jesus for the globe, for the earth. That God was in outer space looking back, and there's that little dot speck out there, and God sent his son. But what I didn't know, it was personal, that he loved me, that he knew me, that he sent his son for me, that Jesus died for me. And when I got that, it made all the difference. 
It was me. He knew, he knew my every thought, my every, every sin, my every mistake. And he loved me anyway, and he died for me anyway. So for God so loved, put your own name in there, Jerry Kellen, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, Jerry Kellen, believes in him, Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. So that you won't receive the wages of your own sin, perish, but you'll receive what Jesus offers, eternal life. How? By believing. And I want to close this morning uh, by simply offering um, an opportunity for anybody here who has not yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ to place their faith in him this morning. And very simply, what I want to do is I want to go through the prayer two times. So the first time I'm just going to say it, I want you to look at me. And the point is I want to see if this makes sense to you because we don't want anybody to be surprised or to sort of say something they don't want to say. And the second time, we're, I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. I'm going to pray the second time. And if that prayer makes sense to you, pray it from your heart silently to God. It's a way to express your faith. It's a way to believe in Jesus. It's not a magical prayer. It's not a magical formula. It's your heart. Can you trust Jesus who has died for you? So here's the prayer. It's something like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me, that he took my sin penalty, death. Thank you that uh, he forgave my sins. Thank you that he's given me eternal life. I trust him right now. I place my faith in him right now. That's just a way to express your faith. So let's uh, bow our heads. I want us to pray together. And if that made sense to you and you're just not sure about where you stand before God, pray along with me silently from your heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Thank you that he took my death penalty. Thank you that he offers me life. And I trust Jesus right now to pay for my sin penalty, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me eternal life. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Help me now to learn to follow you. Help me now to live one day at a time to honor you. Help me now to be ready when Jesus returns. Now, if that prayer uh, made sense to you and you prayed that with me, um, would you just slip up your hand so I could see? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. Okay, you can put your hands down. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of your son. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he died for each one of us, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And God, it's my prayer um, that for those who raise their hands, that they just might sense your presence in their lives today, that they might sense and know that they're forgiven of their sins because of what Jesus did for them, that they might sense that they have a new future, that they have eternal life. Father, for all of us, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to know you and to follow you. And God, it's uh, so important to you that we be ready. May we be reminded today that you're looking for people who are faithful, that you are looking for people who are wise, that you are looking for people who will be ready when you return. Cause us to be alert, Father. 
we need to renew our relationship, if we need to get back in the word, if we need to restore our prayer life, if we need to be connected with other followers of Christ, help us to do what we need to do so that we will be the people you want us to be. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.